I know Alhanna is pleased. She has wanted a child for so long, and I think Porthios is pleased as well, though he tries to act as if fatherhood were nothing special, just doing his duty by the people. I see a warmth between them that has been missing all these years. I really believe that they are beginning to care for each other. About time, Tanis muttered. He had never much liked his brother-in-law. Tying his traveling cloak around his shoulders, he picked up a knapsack, then leaned over to kiss his wife's cheek. Goodbye, love. Don't fret if we're not back right away. Oh, Tanis. Lorana gazed at him searchingly. Don't be afraid. The boy and I need to talk. I see that now. I should have done it a long time ago, but I had hoped. He stopped, then said, I'll send you word. Buckling on his sword, he kissed her again, and was gone. His son's trail was easy to pick up. Spring rains had deluged Solanthus for a month. The ground was muddy, the horse's hoofprints deep and clear. The only other person who had ridden this road lately was Sir William, delivering Caramon's message, and the knight had ridden in the opposite direction, toward Salamnia, whereas the Black Swan was located on the road that led south to Qualinesti. Tanis rode at a relaxed pace. The morning sun was a slit of fire in the sky, and the dew glittered in the grass. The night had been clear, cool enough to make a cloak feel good, but not chill. Gil must have enjoyed his ride, Tanis said to himself. He remembered with guilty pleasure another young man and another midnight journey. I had no horse when I left. I walked from Qualinesti to Solas in search of flint. I had no money, no care, no sense. It's a wonder I made it alive. Tanis laughed ruefully, shook his head. But I was shabby enough that no robber looked twice at me. I couldn't afford to sleep in an inn, and so I stayed out of fights. I spent the nights walking beneath the stars, feeling that at last I was able to breathe deeply. Ah, Gil. Tanis sighed. I did the very thing I promised myself a hundred times I would never do. I bound you and fettered you. The chains were made of silk, forged by love, but they were still chains. Yet how could I do otherwise? You are so precious to me, my son. I love you so much. If anything were to happen— Stop it, Tannis. He sternly reprimanded himself. You're only borrowing trouble, and you know what the interest on that debt can cost you. It's a lovely day. Gil will have a fine ride. And we'll talk tonight, really talk. That is, you'll talk, son. I'll listen. I promise. Tanis continued to follow the horse's tracks. He saw where Gil had allowed the animal its head, saw signs of a mad gallop, both horse and rider giddy with freedom. But then the young man had calmed the horse, proceeded forward at a sensible pace, not to tire the animal. Good for you, boy, Tanis said proudly. To take his mind off his worry, he began considering what he would say to Roshas of the Thalesenthia, Tanis knew the elf well. Near the same age as Portheos, Roshas was enamored of power, enjoyed nothing more than political intrigue. He had been the youngest elf ever to sit on the Senate. 
Rumor had it that he hounded his father until the elder elf finally collapsed under the pressure and relinquished his seat to his son. During the War of the Lance, Roshas had been a burr beneath the saddle of Solosteran, Speaker of the Sun. Solosteran's successor, Portheos, was now having to cope with this irritant. Roshas persistently advocated elven isolation from the rest of the world. He made no secret of the fact that, in his opinion, the king-priest of Istar had been right in offering bounties on dwarves and kender. Roshas would have made one change, however. He would have added humans to the list. Which made all this completely inexplicable. Why was this cagey old spider trying to lure Gilthas, of all people, a quarter-human, into his web? At any rate... Tanis muttered into his beard, This will give me a chance to settle my own score with you, Roshas, old childhood friend. I remember every one of your snide comments, the whispered insults, the cruel little practical jokes, the beatings I took from you and your gang of bullies. I wasn't allowed to hit you then, but by Paladine, there's nobody going to stop me now. The delightful anticipation of smashing his fist into Roshas's pointed chin kept Tanis entertained throughout the better part of the morning. He had no idea what Roshas wanted with his son, but he guessed it couldn't be anything good. It's too bad I didn't tell Gil about Roshas, Tanis mused. Too bad I never told him much of anything about my early life in Qualinesti. Maybe it was a mistake to keep him away from there. If we hadn't, he would have known about Roshas and his type. He wouldn't have fallen for whatever clever scheme the senator's plotting. But I wanted to protect you, Gil. I didn't want you to suffer what I suffered, I... Tanis stopped his horse, turned the animal around. Damn it to the abyss! He stared down at the dirt road, cold dread constricting his heart. He slid off his horse for a better look. The mud, now slowly hardening in the bright sun, told the tale all too clearly. There was only one creature in all of Crin that left tracks like this. Three front claws that dug deep in the ground, a back claw, and the sinuous twisting mark of a reptilian tail. Draconians. Four of them. Tanis examined the prince. His horse, snuffling at them, shied away in disgust. Catching the animal, Tanis held its head near the tracks until it became accustomed to the smell. Remounting, he followed the trail. It could be coincidence, he told himself. The Draconians could merely be traveling the same direction as Gil. But Tanis became convinced, after another mile, that the creatures were stalking his son. At one point, Gil had turned his horse off the trail, led the animal down an embankment to a small stream. At this juncture, the Draconians also left the trail. Tenaciously tracking the horse's hoofprints down to the creek, the Draconians trailed the horse along the water's edge, followed the hoof marks back up to the road. In addition, Tanis saw signs that the Draconians were taking care to keep out of sight. At various points, the clawed footprints would leave the trail and seek the safety of the brush. This road was not particularly well-traveled, but farmers used it, as did the occasional venturing night. If these Draconians were ordinary raiders living off the land, they would not hesitate to attack a lone farmer, steal his wagon and horses. These draconians were hiding from those who passed along the road. They obviously were on a mission. 
but what connection could draconians have with Rasha's? The elf had his faults, certainly, but conspiring with creatures of darkness wasn't one of them. Fearful, alarmed, Tanis spurred his horse. The tracks were hours old, but he wasn't far from the Black Swan. The inn was located in the fairly substantial town of Fairfield. Four draconians would never dare venture into a populated area. Whatever their intention, they would have to strike before Gil reached the inn, which meant Tanis might well be too late. He rode along the trail, traveling at a moderate pace, keeping his eyes on the prints, both the clawed prints and those made by Gil's horse. The young man obviously had no idea he was being followed. He was riding along at an easy walk, enjoying the scenery, reveling in his newfound freedom. The draconians never deviated from their course. And then, Tanis knew where they would strike. A few miles outside of Fairfield, the road entered a heavily wooded area. Oak and walnut trees grew thick, their tangled limbs branching across the trail, blocking out the sunlight, keeping the road in deep shadow. In the days after the cataclysm, the forest was reputed to have been a refuge for robbers, and to this day was known unofficially as Thieves' Acres. Caves honeycombed the hillsides, providing hiding places where men could hide and gloat over their loot. It was the perfect spot for an ambush. Sick with fear, Tanis left off tracking, urged his horse forward at a gallop. He almost rode down a startled farmer who shouted at him, wondering what was the matter. Tanis didn't waste time bothering to answer. The forest was in sight, a long length of dark green banding the road ahead of him. The shadows of the trees closed over him. Day turned to dusk in the blink of an eye. The temperature dropped noticeably. Here and there, patches of sunlight filtered through the overhanging tree limbs. Compared to the darkness around him, the light was almost blinding in its intensity. But soon, even these few glimpses of the sun were lost. The trees closed in. Tanis slowed his horse. Though he grudged the wasted time, he dared not miss whatever tale the ground had to tell him. All too soon, he read the story's end. He couldn't have missed it, no matter how fast he was riding. The dirt road was churned and cut up to such an extent that Tanis found it impossible to decipher what exactly had occurred. Horses' hooves were obliterated by draconian claws. Here and there he thought he saw the impression of a slender elven foot. Add to this a strange set of claw prints. These looked vaguely familiar, but he couldn't immediately identify them. He dismounted, searched the area, and forced himself to be patient, not to overlook the slightest detail. What he discovered brought him no comfort, only increased dread. From the point beyond the churned-up mud, no tracks proceeded onward down the road. Gil had made it this far, and no farther. But what in the name of all that was holy had happened to him? Tanis went back over the ground, expanded his search into the trees— his patience was rewarded. Horses' hooves had been led off the main road and into the woods. The hooves were flanked by the draconian claw marks. Tanis swore bitterly. Returning to his own horse, he tethered the animal on the roadside, then removed his longbow and quiver of arrows from his saddle. He slid the bow over his shoulder and slung the quiver on his back. Loosening his sword in its sheath, he entered the woods. 
All his old skills in hunting and stalking came back to him. He blessed the foresight, or had it been that vision at Storm's Keep that had prompted him to wear his soft leather boots, bring along the bow and arrow that he rarely carried in these days of peace? His gaze swept the ground. He moved through the trees and brush without a sound, treading lightly, careful not to snap a stick, cause a branch to rustle with his passing. The woods grew deeper, denser. He was a long way from the road, tracking four draconians, and he was alone. Not a particularly wise move. He kept going. They had his son. The sound of guttural voices speaking a language that made flesh crawl and brought back unpleasant memories caused Tannis to slow his pace. Holding his breath, he crept forward, moving from tree trunk to tree trunk, nearing his prey. And there they were, or most of them at least. Three draconians stood in front of a cave, conversing in their hideous tongue. And there was the horse, Gill's horse, with its fine leather trappings and silken ribbons tied in its mane. The animal was shivering in fear, bore marks of having been beaten. It wasn't a trained war horse, but it had apparently fought its captors. One of the draconians was cursing the animal and pointing to a bleeding slash on a scaled arm. But there was no sign of Gill. He was probably in the cave with the fourth draconian. But why? What terrible things were they doing to him? What had they done? At least Tannis could take cold comfort from the fact that the only blood visible on the ground was green. He chose his target, the draconian standing nearest to him. Moving more silently than the wind, Tannis lifted his bow, fitted an arrow to it, raised the bow to his cheek, and pulled. The arrow struck the draconian in the back, between the wings. The creature gave a gurgle of pain and astonishment, then toppled over, dead. The body turned to stone held the arrow fast. Never attack a Baz with a sword if you can help it. Swiftly, Tannis had another arrow knocked and ready. The second draconian, its sword drawn, was turning his direction. Tannis fired. The arrow hit the draconian in the chest. It dropped the sword, clutched at the arrow with its clawed hands. Then it, too, fell to the ground. Don't move, Tannis ordered harshly, speaking the common language he knew the creatures understood. The third draconian froze, its sword halfway drawn, its beady eyes darting this way and that. I have an arrow with your foul name on it, Tannis continued. It's pointed straight at what you slime call your heart. Where is the boy you took captive back there? What have you done to him? You have ten seconds to tell me or you meet the same fate as your comrades. The draconian said something in its own language. Don't give me that. Tannis growled. You speak common better than I do, probably. Where is the boy? Ten seconds is almost up. If you... Tannis, my friend, how good to see you again, came a voice. It's been a long time. An elf, tall, handsome, with brown hair, brown eyes, wearing black robes, emerged from the cave. Tannis fought to keep the bow raised and aimed, though his hands trembled. His fingers were wet with sweat, and the fear tore him up inside. Where is my son, Dalimar? Tannis cried hoarsely. What have you done with him? Put the bow down, my friend, Dalimar said gently. Don't make them kill you. Don't make me. Blinded by tears of rage and fear and helpless frustration, 
Tannis kept the bow raised, was ready to loose the arrow, not caring what he hit. Clawed fingers dug into his back, dragged him to the ground. A heavy object struck him. Pain burst in Tannis's head, and though he fought against it, darkness closed around him. Chapter 5 Gil was riding through a particularly dark and gloomy portion of forest, thinking, uncomfortably, that this would be a perfect place for an ambush, when a griffin sailed down through an opening in the trees and landed on the road directly in front of the young man. Gil had never before seen one of the wondrous beasts, who were friends to the elves and no other race on Kryn. He was alarmed and startled at the sight. The beast had the head and wings of an eagle, but its rear portion was that of a lion. Its eyes were fierce. Its wickedly sharp beak could, according to legend, rip through a dragon's scales. His horse was terrified. Horseflesh is one of a griffin's favorite meals. The animal neighed and reared in panic, nearly throwing its rider. Gil was a skilled horseman, such exercise having been advocated as good for his health and he immediately reined in the horse and calmed it down with soothing pats on the neck, gentle words of reassurance. The griffin's rider, an elder elf clad in rich clothing, watched with approval. When Gil's horse was under control once again, the elf dismounted and walked over. Another elf, one of the oddest-looking elves Gilthus had ever seen, waited behind. This strange elf was clothed in practically nothing, leaving bare a well-muscled body decorated with fantastic, colorfully painted designs. The elder elf introduced himself. I am Rashus of the Thales Enthia, and you, I believe, must be Prince Gilthus. Well met, grandson of Solosteran, well met. Gil dismounted, said the polite words as he'd been taught. The two exchanged the formal kiss of greeting and continued through the ritual of introduction. During this proceeding, the griffin glared around, its fierce-eyed gaze penetrating the forest shadows. At one point, it gnashed its beak, its claws churned the ground, and its lion tail lashed about in disgust. The elf accompanying Rasha spoke a few words to the griffin, which twisted its head and flexed its wings and seemed to somewhat sullenly, settle down. Gil was watching the griffin, trying to keep his horse calm, casting oblique glances at the painted elf-servant and attempting, at the same time, to make the correct, polite responses to the senator. Small wonder he became confused. Rashus noticed the young man's difficulty. Permit me to apologize for frightening your horse. It was thoughtless of me. I should have realized that your animal would not be accustomed to our griffins. The horses of Qualinesti are trained to be around them, you see. It never occurred to me that the horses of Tantalus half-elven were not. Gil was shamed. The griffins had long been friends of the elves. To be unacquainted with these magnificent beasts seemed to him tantamount to being unacquainted with one's own kind. He was intending to stammer an apology for his father, but to his astonishment found himself saying something quite different. "'Griffins come to visit us,' Gil said proudly. "'My parents exchange gifts with them yearly. "'My father's horse is well-trained. "'My own horse is young.' "'Rashus politely cut him off. 
Believe me, Prince Gilthus, I do understand, he said earnestly with a glance of cool pity that brought hot blood to the young man's face. Believe me, sir, Gil began, I think you mistake. Rashus continued on, as if he hadn't heard. I thought it might be enjoyable, as well as enlightening, for you to take your first glimpse of Qualinesti from the air, Prince Gilthus. Therefore, on impulse, I flew to meet you. I would be greatly honored if you were to ride back with me. Don't worry, the griffin can easily carry us both. Gil forgot his anger at the insult. He gazed at the wondrous beast with awe and longing. To fly. It seemed all his dreams were coming true at once. But his elation quickly evaporated. His first concern must be for his horse. I thank you for your kind offer, Senator. Call me Rashus, my prince, the elf interrupted. Gil bowed, acknowledging the compliment. I could not leave my horse alone unattended. He patted his horse's neck. I hope you are not offended. On the contrary, Rashus appeared pleased. Far from it, my prince. I'm glad to see you take such responsibility seriously. So many young people do not these days. But you won't have to miss out on the trip. My Caganesti servant here, Rashus waved a hand in the general direction of the strange-looking elf, will return the horse to your father's stables. Caganesti. Now Gil understood. This was one of the famed wilder elves, fabled in legend and song. He had never seen one before. The Caganesti bowed, indicating silently that nothing would give him greater pleasure. Gil nodded awkwardly, all the while wondering what he should do. I see you hesitate. Are you not feeling well? I have heard it said that your health is precarious. Perhaps you should return home, Rashus said solicitously. The rigors of the flight might not be good for you. That remark, of course, decided the matter. His face burning, Gil said that he would be pleased to accompany Senator Rashus and the Griffin. Gil gave over the care of his horse to the Caganesti servant without another thought. Only when he was securely mounted on the Griffin did it occur to the young man to wonder how the senator had known Gil had decided to travel to Qualinesti, and how had Rashus known where to meet him. It was on the tip of Gil's tongue to ask. But he was in awe of the elder elf, in awe of Rashus's elegant and dignified air. Lorana had trained her son well, taught him to be diplomatic. Such a question would be impolite, would imply that Gil didn't trust the elf. Undoubtedly, there was a logical explanation. Gil settled back to enjoy the ride. Chapter 6 as long as he lived, Gil would never forget his first glimpse of the fabled elven city of Qualinost. A first glimpse, yet a familiar sight to the young elf. Rashus turned to witness the young man's reaction. He saw the tears sliding down Gil's cheeks. The senator nodded approval. He even prevented Gil from wiping the tears away. The beauty fills the heart to bursting. The emotion must find an outlet. Let it fall from your eyes. Your tears do you no shame, my prince, but rather great credit. It is only natural that you should weep at the first sight of your true 
homeland. Gil did not miss the senator's emphasis on the word true, and could only agree with him. Yes, this is where I belong. I know it now. I've known it all my life. For this is not my first sight of Qualinost. I've seen it often in my dreams. Four slender spires made of white stone, marbled with shining silver, rose above the tops of the aspen trees, which grew thick within the city. A taller tower, made of gold that gleamed in the sunlight, stood in the city's center, surrounded by other buildings formed of glittering rose quartz. Quiet streets wound like ribbons of silk among the aspen groves and gardens of wildflowers. A sense of peace settled over Gilfus's soul. Peace and belonging. Truly, he had come home. The griffin landed in the center courtyard of a house made of rose quartz, decorated with green jade. The house itself seemed delicate, fragile, yet it had, so Rashus boasted proudly, withstood the tremors and fiery winds of the cataclysm. Gil gazed at the spires, the latticework, the fluted columns and slender arches, and mentally compared this with his parents' manor house. That house, which Lorana had named Journey's End, was rectangular, with sharp angles, gabled windows, and a high-pitched roof. Compared to the graceful, beautiful elven homes, Gil recalled his house as bulky and solid and ugly. It seemed... human. Rashus thanked the griffin politely for its services, gave it several fine gifts, and bid it farewell. Then he led Gilthus into the house. It was more lovely inside than out, if that were possible. Elves love fresh air. Their houses are more window than wall, as the saying goes. Sunlight, streaming through the latticework, danced among the shadows to form patterns on the floor, patterns that seemed alive, for they were constantly shifting with the movement of the sun and clouds. Flowers grew inside the house, and living trees sprang up from the floor. Birds soared in and out freely, filling the house with music. Lullabies whispered by gently splashing water from indoor fountains formed a soft counterpoint to the birdsong. Several Kaganesti elves, tall and heavily muscled, with strange markings on their skin, greeted Rashus with bows and every appearance of deference. These are my wilder elves, Rashus said to Gil in explanation. Once they were slaves. Now, in accordance with modern decrees, I am required to pay them for their services. Gil wasn't certain, but he thought uneasily that Rashus sounded rather put out. The elder elf glanced at him and smiled, and Gil concluded the senator had been jesting. No one in this day and age could possibly approve of slavery. Only myself and my servants live here now, Rashus continued. I am a widower. My wife died during the war. My son was killed fighting with the armies of Whitestone, armies led by your mother, Gilthas. Rashus gave the young man a strange look. My daughter is married and has a house and family of her own. Most of the time I am alone. But today I have company, an honored guest staying with me. I hope you too, my prince, will consider my house your own. I trust you will grace my dwelling with your presence. The senator appeared eager, anxious for Gilthus to say yes. I am the one who would be honored, senator. 
Gil said, flushing with pleasure. You do me too much kindness. I will show you your room in a moment. The servants are making it up now. The lady who is my guest is most anxious to meet you. It would be impolite of us to keep her waiting. She has heard a great deal about you. She is, I believe, a close friend of your mother's. Gil was mystified. Following her marriage, his mother had retained few friends among the elves. Perhaps this person had been one of his mother's childhood companions. Roshus led the way up three flights of gracefully winding stairs. A door at the top opened onto a spacious hallway. Three doors opened off the hall, one at the far end and two on each side. Two of the Kaganesti servants stood outside the far door. They bowed to Roshus. At a signal from him, one of the wilder elves knocked respectfully on the door. Enter, said a woman's voice, low and musical, quiet and imperious. Gil stood back to permit Roshus to enter, but the senator bowed, gestured. My prince? Embarrassed, yet pleased, Gilthus walked into the room. Roshus followed behind him. The servants shut the door. The woman had her back to them. She was standing by a window. The room was octagon-shaped, a small arboretum. Trees grew in the center, their branches carefully coaxed and trained to form a living ceiling of green. Tall, narrow windows were set into the walls. These windows were not opened, Gil noticed, but were all closed and draped in silk. He supposed the room's occupant did not like fresh air. Two doors, one on each side of the room, led to private chambers off this main one. The furniture, a sofa, table, and several chairs, was comfortable and elegant. My lady, said Roshus respectfully, you have a visitor. The woman remained standing with her back to them a moment longer. Her shoulders seemed to stiffen as if bracing herself. Then she turned slowly around. Gil let out a soft breath. He had never in his life seen or imagined such beauty existed, could be embodied in a living being. The woman's hair was the black of the sky at midnight, her eyes the deep purple of amethyst. She was graceful, lovely, ethereal, ephemeral, and there was a sorrow about her that was like the sorrow of the gods. If Rashas had introduced the woman as Mishakal, gentle goddess of healing, Gil would not have been the least surprised. He felt strongly compelled to fall on his knees in worship and reverence. But this woman was not a goddess. My prince, may I present Alhanna Starbreeze, Rashas began. Queen Alhanna Starbreeze, she corrected softly, haughtily. She stood tall and oddly defiant. Queen Alhanna Starbreeze, Roshus amended with a smile as if he were indulging the whim of a child. Please permit me to present Gilthus, son of Lorelanthalassa of the house of Solosteran, and her husband, Tanthalus, half-elven. Roshus added the last almost as an afterthought. Gil heard the distinct pause in Roshus's words, a pause that effectively separated his father from his mother. Gil felt his skin flame in embarrassment and shame. He could not look at this proud and haughty woman, who must be pitying and despising him. She was talking 
not to him but to Roshas. Such was Gil's confusion that he couldn't understand what she was saying at first. When he did, he raised his head and stared at her in pleased astonishment. Tanis half-elven is one of the great men of our time. He is known and revered throughout Ancelon. He has been awarded the highest honors each nation has to offer, including the elven nation's senator. The proud knights of Salamnia bow before him with respect. Revered daughter Crisania of the Temple of Paladine in Palanthus considers him a friend. The dwarven king of Thorbarden calls Tanis half-elven brother. Rashus coughed. Yes, your majesty, he said dryly. I understand the half-elf has friends among the Kender, too. Yes, he does, Alhanna returned coolly, and considers himself fortunate to have won their innocent regard. No accounting for taste, Rasha said, his lip curling. Alhanna made no response. She was looking at Gil, and now she was frowning, as if a new and unpleasant thought had suddenly occurred to her. Gil had no idea what was going on. He was too dazed, too rattled. To hear such glowing praise of his father, praise given by the queen of Qualinesti and Sylvanesti, his father, one of the great men of our time, proud knights bowed to him. Dwarven king calls him brother, highest honors of each nation. Gil had never known that, never known any of that. He realized suddenly that a deafening silence had descended on the room. He was extremely uncomfortable, wished someone would say something. And then he was alarmed. Maybe it's me, he said to himself, panicked, trying to recall his mother's lessons in entertaining royalty. Maybe I'm supposed to be the one making conversation. Alhanna was studying him intently. Her lovely eyes turned upon him effectively robbed him of coherent speech. Gil tried to say something, but discovered he had no voice. He looked from the senator to the queen and knew then that something was wrong. The sunlight was not permitted to enter this room. Curtains had been drawn across the windows. The shadows had at first seemed cool and restful. Now they were ominous, unnerving, like the pall that falls over the world before the unleashing of a violent storm. The very air was dangerous— charged with lightning. Alhanna broke the silence. Her purple eyes darkened, deepened almost to black. So this is your plan, she said to Roshas, speaking Qualinesti with a slight accent that Gilthus recognized as belonging to her people, the Sylvanesti. Quite a good one, don't you think? Roshas answered her. He was calm, unmoved by her anger. He is only a boy, Alhanna cried in a low voice. He will have guidance, a wise counselor, at his side, Rashas replied. You, of course, she said scathingly. The Thalesenthia elects the regent. I will, of course, be happy to offer my services. The Thalesenthia? You have that band of old men and women in your pocket. Gil felt the knot tighten his stomach, the blood start to pound painfully in his head. Once again, adults were talking over, around, below, and above him. He might as well be one of those trees sprouting up out of the floor. He doesn't know, does he? Alhanna said. Her look on Gil now was one of pity. 
I think perhaps he knows more than he lets on, Rasha said with a sly smile. He came of his own free will. He wouldn't be here if he didn't want this. And now, your majesty, he said the title with fine sarcasm, if you and Prince Gilthus will both excuse me, I have pressing business elsewhere. There is much to do in preparation for tomorrow's ceremony. The senator bowed, turned on his heel, and left the room. The servants shut the door immediately on his leaving. Want what? Gil was bewildered and angry himself. What's he talking about? I don't understand. Don't you? She said to him. Before he could reply, Alhanna turned away. Her body was rigid, both fists clenched, nails digging into flesh. Feeling like a child who has been shut up in the nursery when the adults are having a party in the living room below, Gil stalked over to the door and flung it open. Two of the tall, strong, Kaganesti elves planted their bodies before the door. Each held a spear in his hand. Gil started to shove between them. The elves did not move. Excuse me, perhaps you don't understand. I'm leaving now, Gil said politely, but in a stern tone to show them he meant what he said. He stepped forward. The two said nothing. Their spears crossed in front of the door, in front of him. Rashas was just disappearing down the staircase. Senator, Gilthus called, trying to keep calm. The flame of his anger was starting to waver in fear's chill wind. There's some sort of misunderstanding. These servants of yours won't let me out. Rashas paused, glanced back. Those are their orders, my prince. You'll find the suite of rooms you will be sharing with Her Majesty quite comfortable. The best in my household, in fact. The wilder elves will provide you with whatever you want. You have only to ask. I want to leave, Gilthus said quietly. So soon? Rashas was pleasant, smiling. I couldn't permit it. You've only just arrived. Rest, relax, look out the windows, enjoy the view. And by the way, the senator added, proceeding down the stairs, his words floating upward. I'm truly glad you find Qualinesti so beautiful, Prince Gilthus. You're going to be living here a long, long time. Chapter 7 Dalimar! Tannis beat on the bolted door. Dalimar, damn you! I know you're out there! I know you can hear me! I want to talk to you! I... Ah, my friend, came a voice practically in his ear. I'm glad you finally regained consciousness. At the unexpected sound, Tannis nearly jumped through a stone wall. Once his heart had quit racing, he turned to face the dark elf, who stood in the center of the room, a slight smile on the thin lips. Do stop this shouting. You're disrupting my class. My students cannot concentrate on their spells. Damn your students! Where is my boy? Tannis shouted. He is safe, Dalimar replied. First, Tannis lost control. Heedless of the consequences, he leapt at Dalimar, hands going for the dark elf's throat. Blue lightning flared, crackled. Tannis was thrown backward. He crashed painfully into the wooden door. The shock of the magic was paralyzing. His limbs twitched, his head buzzed. He took a moment to recover. Then, frustrated with his own helplessness, 
he started toward Dalimar again. Stop it, Tannis, the dark elf said sternly. You're acting like a fool. Face the facts. You are a prisoner in the Tower of High Sorcery. My tower. You are weaponless, and even if you did have a weapon, you could do nothing to harm me. Give me my sword, Tannis said, breathing heavily. We'll see about that. Dalimar almost, but not quite, laughed. Come now, my friend. I told you your son is safe. How long he remains so is up to you. Is that a threat? Tannis demanded grimly. Threats? Off with the fearful. I merely state facts. Come, come, my friend. What has happened to your renowned logic, your legendary common sense? All flown out the window when the stork flew in. He's my son. Those draconians. I was afraid. Tannis gave up. How could you understand? You've never been a parent. If degenerating into a mindless idiot is what it means to be a parent, I shall certainly take care that I never achieve such a dubious distinction. Please, sit down. Let us discuss this like rational men. Glowering, Tana stalked over to a comfortable armchair, placed near a welcome fire. Even on a warm spring day, the Tower of High Sorcery was dark and chill. The room in which he was imprisoned was furnished with every luxury. He'd been provided with food and drink. His few minor wounds, scratches mostly from the draconian's claws and a bump on the head, had been carefully tended. Dalimar seated himself in a chair opposite. If you will listen with patience, I will tell you what is transpiring. I'll listen. You talk. Tannis's voice softened, almost broke. My son is all right. He is well? Of course. Gilthus would be of little use to his captors if he were not. You may take comfort in that fact, my friend. And I am your friend, the dark elf added, seeing the angry flash in Tannis's eyes, though I admit appearances are against me. As for your son, Dalimar continued, he is where he has longed to be, his homeland, Qualanesti. It is his homeland, Tannis. Though you don't like to hear that, do you? The boy is lodged quite comfortably, probably being afforded every courtesy. Only natural for the elves to treat him with deference, respect. Since he is to be their king... Tannis couldn't believe he'd heard right. He was on his feet again. This is some sort of bad joke. What is it you want, Dalimar? What is it you're really after? The dark elf stood up. Gliding forward, he laid his hand gently on Tannis's arm. No joke, my friend. Or if it is, no one is laughing. Gilthus is in no danger now. But he could be. Once again, Tannis saw the vision he'd seen on Storm's Keep. Dark clouds swirling around his sun. Tannis lowered his head to hide his burning tears. Dalimar's grip on him tightened. Get hold of yourself, my friend. We don't have much time. Every minute is critical. There is a great deal to explain. And, Dalimar added softly, plans to make. Chapter 8 King? 
Gil repeated in astonishment. He stared at Alhanna in disbelief. Speaker of the sun and stars? Me? No, you can't be serious. I... I don't want to be king. The woman smiled, a smile that was like winter sunshine on thick ice. The smile lit her face, but did not warm her or him. I'm afraid that what you want, Prince Gilthas, does not matter. But you're queen. Queen. Her voice was bitter. My uncle Portheos is the speaker, Gil went on, baffled and, though he didn't admit it, frightened. I... this doesn't make sense. Alhanna gave him a cool glance. Then she turned away, walked back to the window. Parting the curtain, she stared outside, and in the light he could see her face. She had seemed cold and imperious in the shadows. In reality, in the sunlight... She was careworn, anxious, and afraid. She, too, was afraid, though he had the impression that her fear was not for herself. I don't want to be king, Gil heard himself whine like a child complaining about being sent to bed. He blushed deeply. I'm sorry, Lady Alhanna. So much has happened, and I don't understand any of it. You are saying that Roshus brought me here to crown me Speaker of the Sun and Stars to make me King of Qualinesti. I don't see how that's possible. Don't you? she asked, shifting her gaze. The purple eyes were hard and dark with suspicion. Gilthus was shocked. My lady, I swear, I don't know. Please believe me. Where are your parents? Alhanna asked abruptly. She was looking back outside now. Home, I suppose, said Gil, a choking sensation in his throat, unless my father rode after me. Hope rose in Gil's heart. Certainly his father would come after him. Tanis would find the invitation right where Gil had left it, his declaration of his right to do as he pleased. Tanis would ride to the Black Swan and... and discover that Gil had never been there. I let Roshus's servant have my horse. He... he could have told my parents anything. Gil sank despondently into a chair. What a fool I've been. Alhanna let fall the curtain. She studied the young man intently a moment. Then, coming over, she laid the fingertips of her hand on his shoulder. Her touch was chill, even through the fabric of his shirt. You say that your parents knew nothing of this? They didn't, my lady, Gil admitted shamefacedly. They told me not to come. I didn't listen. I ran away. I left in the night. I think you had better tell me the whole story. Alhanna seated herself, erect and regal, in a chair across from him. Gilthus did so. He was astonished at the end of his recital to see her face relax. She brushed her hand across her eyelashes. You were afraid my parents were behind this, Gil said in sudden realization. Not behind it, perhaps, Alhanna said, sighing, but that they approved. Forgive me, Prince. If your father and mother were here, I would beg their forgiveness, too. Reaching out her hand, she clasped his. I've been alone for so long. I began to think everyone I had ever trusted had betrayed me. But we are in this together, it seems. 
She squeezed his hand gently, then released it. Sinking back into her chair, she stared unseeing at the curtained window, then sighed again. My father and mother both knew I planned to come to Qualinesti. They must know I'm here, no matter what the servant told them. They'll come after me, my lady, Gil said stoutly, hoping to comfort her. They'll rescue both of us. But Alhanna only shook her head. No, Roshus is far too clever to permit that to happen. He has concocted some means to keep your parents from reaching you. You make it sound as if we could be in danger. From Senator Roshus? From our own people? She raised her gaze to meet his. Not your own, Gelthus. You are different. That's why they chose you. You are part human. The unsaid words hung in the air. Gil stared at her. He knew she had not meant it as an insult, especially not after the praise she had given Tannis. It was a habit of thought, bred into her by thousands of years of self-imposed isolation, and the belief, however mistaken, that the elves are the chosen, the beloved, of the gods. Gil knew this, yet he felt hot words rise up into his throat. He knew if he said them it would make matters only worse. Yet... Grace under pressure, my dear. Gil heard his mother's voice, saw her rest her hand on Tannis's arm. Gil remembered meetings held at their house, remembered watching his mother move with dignity and calm through the storms of political intrigue. He remembered her words to his father, reminding him to remain cool, under control. Gil remembered seeing his father turn red in the face, swallow hard. Gil swallowed hard. I think you should tell me what's going on, my lady, he said in a low voice. It is really very simple, Alhanna replied. My husband, Portheos, is being held a prisoner in Sylvanesti. He was betrayed by my people. I am being held a prisoner here, betrayed by his people. But why? Gil was perplexed. We elves don't like change. We fear it, mistrust it. But the world is changing very rapidly. We must change with it, or we will wither away and perish. The War of the Lance taught us that. At least, I thought it did. The younger elves agree with us, the elder do not. And it is the elder, like Senator Roshas, who wield the power. I never supposed he would dare go this far, however. What will happen to you and Uncle Portheos? We will be exiled, she said softly. Neither kingdom will accept us. Gil knew enough of his people to realize that exile for an elf is far worse punishment than execution. Alhanna and Portheos would be known as dark elves, elves who have been cast out of the light. They would be exiled from their homelands, prohibited any communication with their people. They would have no rights anywhere on Ancelon, and as such would be in constant peril. Rightly or wrongly, dark elves are considered evil. They are hounded persecuted, driven out of every city and town. They are fair targets for bounty hunters, thieves, and other scum. Not surprising that in order to survive, most dark elves did seek refuge in the shadow of Takisas. Gil could think of nothing to say that would be of any help or comfort. He looked up at Alhanna. Why me, my lady? Why now? I am with child, she said simply, 
If our baby is born, he or she will be heir to the throne. As it is, should anything happen to poor Theos, your mother is rightful heir. But your mother's marriage to a half-human bastard... Gil sucked in his breath. Alhanna glanced at him, sympathetic, but not apologetic. That is how most of the Qualinesti think of your father, Gilthus. It is one reason Tannis Half-Elven has never been eager to return to his homeland. Life here was not very pleasant for him when he was young. It would be worse now. What's the matter? Didn't you ever stop to consider this? Gil shook his head slowly. No, he'd never considered his father's feelings. Never thought about Tannis at all. I only thought about myself. Alhanna was continuing. Your mother's marriage precludes her from ruling. But I'm part human, Gil reminded her. So you are, Alhanna replied coolly. Rashus and the Thales Enthia do not see that as a problem. In fact, they probably view your bloodline as an asset to them. Rashus considers all humans weak, tractable. He thinks that because you are part human, he can lead you around by the nose. Gilthus flushed in anger. He lost control. Fists clenched, he bounced up out of the chair. By all the gods, I'll show Rashus, Gil proclaimed loudly. I'll show them all. I'll, I'll... The door opened. One of the Kaganesti guards, his spear in his hand, glared suspiciously into the room. Calm down, young man, advised Alhanna in a soft voice, speaking Sylvanesti. Don't start trouble you cannot finish. Gil's anger flared, sputtered, then burned out like a gutted candle. The Kaganesti eyed him, then began to laugh. He said something to his fellow guard in Kaganesti and shut the door. Gil didn't speak the wilder elf language but the Kaganesti words were mixed with enough Qualinesti to bring a blush of shame to Gil's cheek. Something about the pup trying to bark like an old dog. So you are saying that even if I am king, I'll really be their prisoner? Are you suggesting I get used to that too, my lady? He spoke bitterly. Alhanna was silent a moment. Then she shook her head. No, Gilthus. Never get used to being their pawn. Fight them. You are the son of Tantalus and Lorelanthalassa. You are strong, stronger than Rashus thinks. With such noble blood in your veins, how can you be otherwise? Even if it is mixed blood, he thought, but did not say. He was pleased at her confidence. He resolved to be worthy of it, no matter what happened. Alhanna smiled at him reassuringly, then walked again to the window. Parting the curtain, she looked outside. It occurred to him at this moment that she must be doing something other than admiring the view. What is it, my lady? Who's out there? Hush. Keep your voice down. She closed the curtain, then opened it, then closed it. A friend. I have given him the signal. He saw them bring you in. I have just told him we can trust you. Who? Portheos? Gil was suddenly buoyantly hopeful. Nothing seemed impossible. Alhanna shook her head. One of my own people, a young guardsman named Samar, 
he fought with my husband against the dream in Sylvanesti. When Portheus was captured, Seymar remained loyal to his commander. Portheus sent Seymar to warn me. He came too late. I was already Rashus's prisoner. But now Seymar has completed his arrangements. The Thales Enthia meets this evening to plan for tomorrow's coronation. Tomorrow? Gil echoed the word in disbelief. Do not be afraid, Gilthas, Alhanna said. Paladine willing, all will be well. Tonight, while Rashus is attending the meeting, you and I will escape. Chapter 9 Rashus planned this all very carefully. Of course, Tanis, you were meant to think that Draconians had abducted the boy, Dalimar told him. You fell into the trap quite neatly. The wilder elf led the horse into the forest, left it as a tempting bit of bait out in front of the cave. The rest, you know. Tanis was barely listening. Lorana, he thought. She'll worry when she doesn't hear from me. She'll realize something's wrong. She'll go to Qualinesti. She'll put a stop to this. Ah, you are wondering about your wife, Dalimar said. Discomfited at having his thoughts laid bare, Tanis shrugged, lied. I was only thinking of sending her a message, telling her I was all right. So she won't worry. Yes, of course, said Dalimar, his half-smile indicating he wasn't fooled. The thoughtful husband. You'll be pleased, then, to know that I've already taken care of the matter. I sent one of the servants from the Black Swan with a note for your wife, saying that all was well that you and your son needed time alone together. You should thank me. Tanis replied with a few words in human that were not in any way, shape, or form an expression of gratitude. Dalimar's smile darkened. I repeat, you should thank me. I may have saved Lorana's life. If she had gone to Qualinost and tried to interfere... He paused, then shrugged his slender shoulders. Tanis had been pacing the room. He stopped in front of Dalimar. You're implying she might be in peril? From Rashus and the Thales Enthia? I don't believe you. By the gods, these are elves we're talking about. I am an elf, Tanis, Dalimar said quietly, and I am the most dangerous man you know. Tanis started to say something, but his tongue froze to the roof of his mouth. His throat constricted, shutting off his breathing. He swallowed, then managed to whisper huskily, What are you saying? And how do I know I can trust you? Dalimar did not immediately answer. He spoke a word, and a wine decanter appeared in his hand. Rising, he walked over to a table on which stood a silver tray and two thin-stemmed crystal glasses. Will you have some? The wine is elven, very fine, very old. Part of the stock of my late Shalafi. Tanis was on the verge of refusing. It is generally a wise idea never to eat or drink anything while incarcerated in a tower of high sorcery with a dark elf wizard. But Tanis's renowned logic reminded him that he would get nowhere behaving like a thick-headed lout. If Dalimar wanted to dispose of him... The mage would have done so by now. 
And then, too, Dalimar had made a subtle inference to Raislin, his Shalafi. Once Raislin and Tanis had fought on the same side. Once Dalimar and Tanis had fought on the same side as well. The Dark Elf had said something earlier about making plans. Silently, Tanis accepted the glass. To old alliances, Dalimar said, echoing Tanis's thoughts. He tilted the wine to his lips and took a sip. Tanis did the same, then set the glass down. He didn't need a fuzzy head, a fevered brain. Silently, he waited. Dalimar held his glass to the firelight, studied the wine's crimson color. Like blood, isn't it? His gaze shifted to Tanis. You want to know what is going on? I'll tell you. The Dark Queen is back in the game. She is arranging her pieces on the board, putting them into position. She has stretched forth her arm, sent out her seductive call. Many feel her touch, many hear her voice. Many are moved to do her bidding without ever realizing that they are acting for her. But then, Dalimar added wryly, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, am I, my friend? Tanis took care to look blank. Storms keep, the dark elf pursued. Surely you haven't forgotten your visit to Ariakan's fortress. Why are you telling me these things? Tanis demanded. You're not thinking of changing robes, are you? Dalimar laughed. White is not my color. Don't worry, my friend, I'm not betraying any of my queen's secrets. Takesis understands the mistakes she made in the past. She has learned from them. She won't repeat them. She is moving slowly, subtly, in ways completely unexpected. Tanis snorted. You're claiming this business with my son is all a plot of her dark majesties? Think about it, my friend, Dalimar advised. As perhaps you know, I have little love for Portheos. He cast me in shame and humiliation from my homeland. On his orders, I was blindfolded, bound hand and foot, and hauled in a cart, like one of your human slaughter animals, to the borders of Sylvanesti. There, with his own hands, he threw me into the mud. I would not weep to see the same happen to him. But even I admit that Portheos is an effective leader. He is courageous, swift to action. He is also rigid and inflexible and proud. But these flaws have, over the years, been tempered by the virtues of his wife. Dalmar's voice softened. Alhanna Starbreeze. I saw her often in Sylvanesti. I was of low caste. She, a princess. I could view her only from a distance, but that didn't matter. I was a little bit in love with her. What man isn't? Tanis growled. He made an impatient gesture. Get on with whatever point it is you're making. My point is this. The Treaty of the Unified Nations of the Three Races. Tanis shook his head, apparently mystified. I don't know what you're talking about. Then let me enlighten you. An alliance of the elven kingdoms of Qualinesti and Sylvanesti with the human kingdoms of Salamnia, southern and northern Urgoth, and the dwarven kingdom of Thorbarden. For nearly five years, you and Lorana have worked to bring this about. 
ever since your clandestine visit to Storm's Keep. Portheos, urged on by Alhanna, has finally agreed to sign. It would have been a powerful alliance. Dalimar lifted his delicate hand, snapped his fingers. A spark of blue flame flared around the white skin. A puff of smoke wafted in the air, wavered a moment, then drifted away. Gone. Tanis regarded him grimly. How did you find out? Ask rather, my friend. How did Senator Roshus find out? Tanis was silent. Then he began to swear softly beneath his breath. Roshus told you he knew. He betrayed his own people. I can't believe that, not even of Roshus. No, the senator still has some smattering of honor left in him. He is not a traitor. Not yet. He gave me some lame excuse, but I think the truth is fairly obvious. When were the final papers to have been signed? Next week, Tanis said bitterly, staring into the flickering flames. Ah, there. Dalimar shrugged again. You see? Tanis did see. He saw the Dark Queen whispering her words of seduction into elven ears. Senator Roshus would be shocked to the core of his being at the suggestion that he was being seduced by evil. In his mind, he was acting only for good, the good of the elves, keeping them safe, isolated, insulated. All the hard work, all the endless hours of traveling back and forth, all the hard-fought negotiations— Convincing the knights to trust the elves, convincing the dwarves to trust the Argothians, convincing the elves to trust anybody. All gone in a puff of smoke. And Lord Ariakin and his dread knights of Tachesis growing stronger by the hour. This was a terrible blow to their hopes for peace. Yet at the moment, all Tanis could think of was his boy. Is Gilthus safe? Is he well? Does he know what Rasha's plots? What will he do if he finds out? Hopefully nothing. Nothing rash, nothing foolish, nothing to put himself or others into danger. Gil had never been in any sort of danger or difficulty before now. His father and mother had seen to that. He wouldn't know how to react. We always protected him, Tanis said, not realizing he was talking aloud. Maybe we were wrong, but he was so sick. So fragile. How could we do otherwise? We raise our children to leave us, Tanis, Dalimar said quietly. Startled, Tanis looked at the dark elf. Caramon said that. Yes. He said it to me after Palin had taken his test. Our children are given to us for only a short time. During that time, we must teach them to live on their own, because we won't always be around. Wise words. Recalling his friend, Tanis smiled fondly, sadly. But Caramon wasn't able to follow his dictum, not when it came to his own son. He was silent a moment, then said quietly, Why are you telling me all this, Dalimar? What's in it for you? Her dark majesty has a very high regard for you, Tanis, half-elven. 
Neither she nor I consider it conducive to our cause to have your son on the elven throne. I think we would do far better with Portheos, Dalimar added dryly. What about the treaty? That victory is already ours, my friend. No matter what happens among the elves, the treaty is so much scrap paper. Portheos will never forgive the Sylvanesti for betraying him. He won't sign now. You know it. And if the two elven nations refuse to sign, the dwarves of Thorbarden will refuse to sign. And if the dwarves— Hang the dwarves, Tanis said impatiently. Does this mean you'll help me bring Gilthus home? Your son's coronation is planned for tomorrow, Dalimar said, raising his wine glass to Tanis in a mocking salute. It is a solemn occasion, one no father should miss. Chapter 10 Twilight enhanced the beauty of the elven land. The soft, glowing colors of the setting sun shone through the silken curtains, burnished every object in the room with gold. Its beauty was wasted on Gil. Nervously, he paced away the hours. The house was still. The Kaganesti guards hardly ever spoke, and when they did, it was only briefly and in their own language, a language that sounded like the calls of wild birds. The guards brought in dinner, bowls of fruit and bread, wine and water. Then, after a swift searching glance around the room, they left, shutting the door behind them. Alhanna could eat nothing. This food tastes like ashes, she said. Despite his trouble, Gilthus was hungry. He ate not only his meal, but, when he saw she wasn't going to eat, hers as well. Alhanna smiled faintly. The resiliency of youth, it is good to see. You are the future of our race. She pressed her hand against her abdomen. You give me hope. Night was forbidden to truly settle over Qualinesti. The darkness was lit by thousands of tiny sparkling lights shining in the trees. Alhanna lay down, closed her eyes, and tried to find some rest before the evening's long and possibly dangerous journey. Gil continued pacing in the darkness, attempting to sort through the confused jumble of his thoughts. Home. How he had longed to leave it. Now, perversely, he longed to be back. Father came after me. I know he did, and maybe I've put him in danger. Gil sighed. I've made a mess of things. Whatever happens to father will be my fault. He warned me not to go. Why didn't I listen? What's wrong with me? Why do I have these horrible feelings inside me? I... He stopped. Voices, loud voices, speaking Qualinesti, came floating up from far below. Alarmed, thinking perhaps that Alhanna's plot had been discovered, Gil wondered if he should wake her. She was already awake, sitting up, her eyes open wide. She listened several moments, then sighed in relief. It is only a few members of the Thales Endia, Rashus's cohorts. They're planning on entering the Senate chambers together to present a solid front. Then all the senators aren't behind Rashus? The younger members are opposed to him, though there are too few of them to matter. But many of the elder are wavering. If Portheos were here, there would be no contest, and Rashus knows it. 
What will happen tomorrow when you're gone and I'm not here to be crowned? Alhanna was scornful. The people will wake to discover that they have no ruler. Rashus will be forced to send for Portheos. The Thalesenthia will be chastened and we can get on with our lives. Such as they are. Gil had heard his parents talk about the marriage of Alhanna and Portheos. It wasn't a happy one. Husband and wife rarely saw each other. Portheos was fighting Lorak's dream in Sylvanesti. Alhanna spent her time shuttling between the two kingdoms, trying desperately to hold them together. But she spoke of her husband with respect and pride, if not affection. Gil gazed at her with adoring eyes. I could live off her beauty alone. If she were mine, I wouldn't need anything else. I could do without water, food. How could any man not love her? Portheos must be a great fool. A brief burst of cheering erupted from down below. The sound of voices began to diminish. They're leaving, said Alhanna. Now the gods will relax. The house was silent. Then, once certain Rashas was gone, the Kaganesti guards outside their door began to talk and laugh. Spears clattered to the floor. More laughter and strange clicking sounds. Puzzled, Gil looked at Alhanna. Those are sticks you hear being tossed onto the floor. The Kaganesti are playing a game of their people. They do this whenever Rashas leaves, but don't imagine they are letting down their guard, she warned. They would trade their betting sticks for spears the moment you tried to open that door. Then how are we going to escape? It was a long drop to the garden below. Gil had already looked. Seymar has everything planned, Alhanna said, and would say no more. Time passed. Gil was edgy, nervous. How long will the meeting of the Thalesenthia last? Far into the night, said Alhanna quietly. After all, they are plotting sedition. The Wilder Elves' game was becoming increasingly entertaining, judging by the bursts of laughter and the occasional excited, friendly argument. Gil walked over to the door and put his ear to it to hear better. He would like to join in such a game sometime, and wondered how it was played. Sticks clattered. Then there would be moments of breath-held silence, followed by a gasp of relief or howls of dismay. At the end, cries of success came from the winners— good-natured swearing from the losers.